0: If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on
1: Okay, it's basic folk, a podcast where in which we have honest conversations with folk musicians, invasive questions, personal topics all discussed here on Basic Folk, the podcast. I'm your host, Cindy House. Hello. Uh, happy to be with you again. Here we are. If you are just joining us for the first time, well, welcome to you. I would love for you to check out my website, cindyhouse.net. You can grab a Basic Folk beanie there. There are also all the episodes of Basic Folk posted. This is the 58th episode today. We have Dave Godowski. The question is, business or performance? Well, according to Dave Godowski, you don't have to choose, guys. As a professional music fan for nearly three decades, Dave has been an artist manager, A&R rep, and several other kinds of music industry types. All the while, he's weaved in and out of the singer-songwriter-performer world, which he has a great talent for. Dave's genuine good-hearted nature has gotten him the trust, talent, and time of many impressive well-known musicians, like Bonnie Bear. Gene Ween, Adam Duritz, and Leanne LaHavas. He's also well connected to many smaller music communities. One of those communities was essential to his songwriting in the last ten or so years: the Sub Rosa Songwriting Retreat that we have talked about uh, on this podcast before. It's a songwriting retreat that takes place on Three Mile Island in Lake Winnipesaukee, New Hampshire. Dave talks about how this retreat has allowed him to piece together enough songs for his last few albums. His newest album, Cuts, which depending on when you're listening to this podcast, it's out on February 28th. It's uh, this beautiful, calming album dotted with lovely harp and woodwinds. During production, he was concentrating on keeping the band zen and working to create a musical Xanax. He said if people were having a panic attack, they could put this on and it would calm them. It's a great album. I hope you go listen to it when it is out in February, February 28th. Um, we're going to take a listen to a clip from one of his new songs from Cuts. This is called So-and-so, By-and-by from Dave Gadowski, and then we will get to our conversation on Basic Book. I'm making
0: it nose to please
1: Dave Gadowski. Yeah. this is cool. It is. Yeah, thanks for talking to me.
0: I haven't. I was gonna. I was thinking to myself, I haven't started yet. Yes, it started. I haven't. Yeah, it's my already, pleasure. You,
1: you already know it's going to be a professional interview because I'm so smooth. Yes. Yeah. You are from Maine. Yes. Whereabouts are you
0: from, and what is your hometown like? I'm from the town of Yarmouth, Maine. About 7,000 people. Uh, It's a great little suburban town. It's right outside of Portland, which is a great small city. Um, Yeah, great place to live. It's the classic kind of place that like, when you're 16 years old, 17 years old, you're like, get me out of here. This is so boring. This sucks. And then... It doesn't take that long to be like, oh, you know what? It's pretty cool. Like, it's a pretty cool place. Mm. Um, It's right on the coast. Maine's just a cool place, you know? I think there's other small suburban towns in America that actually are probably legitimately really boring. Mm -hmm. And um, this isn't one of them. It's actually a cool place. What's the accent like? The accent? Mm Mm-hmm. I can't... There really isn't much of one. You have to get up into Maine to get into accent territory. I can't really... And I can't really do it. I didn't really grow up with it. It's disappointing. Yeah. Interviewing We're done Southern with this. Southern Maine <laughs> is... um. It's really no different than Vermont or New Hampshire or Rhode Island or Massachusetts. Although I guess sometimes there is like a... It doesn't really have the Boston accent.
1: I find... The main accent, what I know of it, to be very similar to the Western Massachusetts accent, where there's like, you can't get the, uh, from the, uh. Yeah, the, uh, the air. It's like a dip down and then back up.
0: Yep. Uh, Yep. 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 Yep, there's that thing, which might be like some form of Mandarin, actually.
1: Hmm. Interesting. Moving on. (laughs) One thing that you aren't intentionally taught, or a lot of people aren't intentionally taught to do, is to listen to music. Um, You are basically a professional music fan. You've managed musicians, signed musicians, worked with very talented songwriters throughout your career. What was it like for you to start discovering music at a young age?
0: That's really interesting. I've never thought of it that way. That's a good. I'm gonna steal that from now on. You may. Um, young age, you mean like really young, like when I was a kid, mm-hmm. or do you mean like when I first got into professional? Yeah, music I kind of have
1: another question about like about like your identity when it came to listening and discovering, and then when you started to develop a refined taste, but. For this question, I just want to know, like, when you first started listening to music, what was it like? Was there like an immediate connection, or were you just like, "Oh, whatever, this is music," and wore and like play with he man and stuff?
0: Oh yeah, like as a kid, there was definitely a huge connection. It's like the only thing I was really passionate about since I was like a little kid, you know, like eight, seven or eight or something, Mm -hmm. like. I mean, I remember just being so obsessed with records. Um, My parents had crates of old records from the 60s. Um, Everything from the Beach Boys to Neil Young to Bob Dylan to, like, the Monkees and, you know, funny stuff like that. Um, And I just remember, like, sitting there listening to records and studying the packaging and you know that was a time where the act the physical act of listening to music was as compelling as the music itself you know like you could get lost in the process of putting the needle on a record and listening to it and and reading who these people were and you didn't know any; it was just this big mystery all you knew was what you were hearing and whatever text and photos were in the sleeve. So it was just this, you know, had this mysterious element to it that I became obsessed with. It was and like, almost sounds
1: like an adventure.
0: Yeah, exactly. It was adventurous. It was like, ex- it was exploring the unknown every time you found some new record. Um, and then you also wouldn't know anything about it or you wouldn't have any sense if anyone else knew anything about it. Like I remember talking to people at school and being like have you ever heard of this artist or that artist and it was equal chances that someone would say like um yeah I've heard of Leonard Cohen he's a big deal everyone knows him and I'm like oh okay or like does everyone know about this other person you know like you just have no you have no sense of things it isn't like today when you just you can see how many like Instagram followers they have right or whatever and you know or you know within like a few clicks or whatever you can tell like more than you would ever possibly in a million years want or need to know about anyone anyone isn't
1: that so hilarious when you discover someone you're like what a great discovery and you look at their instagram and they have like a million followers yeah yeah (laughs) that used to not happen
0: i know It's fun when it happens the other way. Like, you assume someone's, like, huge, and you look them up, and you're like, what? (laughs) How is this person not, like...
1: For me, sometimes, when I do look at someone's numbers, there is, like, either that, like, um, extreme, you know, on the scale of extremes, either there's, like, a million followers or there's, like, a hundred. And when I find that somebody has, like, a hundred Instagram followers, I feel this, like, great despair Mm. Like, oh no. Yeah. This is terrible. Right. Uh, What can I do? Probably nothing.
0: Probably nothing unless you um, have millions of dollars or something. (laughs) Right, right, right. Yeah, the correlation between quality and exposure is non existent, really. Which can be fun sometimes for fans not so fun for the artist Hmm. but it
1: kind of seems like for you it's been a career-long struggle of choosing performance over business
0: yeah more so at different points but yeah yeah why do you think that exists I think a lot of it has to do with um it's it's not even a so much a logistical thing as it is a perception thing Like I'm not allowed to be feeling like I'm not allowed to be a musician if I'm working in music. And that was something I learned early on that really kind of bummed me out because it never occurred to me before. I was just like, I have car payments and student loan debt and bills and rent and all these things. Like you know, I, I, I need to get a job. I can't just be a musician. Like, you know, I need to get a full-time job immediately. So thinking, well, why don't I just find a job in music? Like, it's the one thing I want to do. And I didn't even know what the music industry was. It was like, there must be jobs in music, right? There, I know that there's some, I don't know what it is, but there's some music industry. Um, so I found a job. At this record label, and was like, sure, yeah, I'll just do anything. And the next thing I knew, it was like I was playing gigs, and there was immediately like this sense of like, oh wait, so you work at a record label? Oh, so, but I don't get it. Like, which one? Which one are you? Are you one of us or one of them? It was Mm -hmm. like being a cop at a party or something. (laughs) Like, you know, like are you the? Are you a label guy or are you one of the band? Was it, it was seen in a negative way? It may have been, like, inadvertently negative. I don't think there was much, like, oh, we don't care about this guy. He's in the, with the label or something. At least not overtly. But it was definitely there, like, under, like, in between the lines, kind of, you know? Mm. Like, it was, I think, for some reason, a lot of people have a hard time imagining that one person could be both.
1: Hmm. Did you move to Boston after college? Yes. And then what were you doing in the city when you first moved here?
0: Living on my friend's floor on an air mattress and trying to find a job. And my this was like when cell phones first came out. And I remember getting a cell phone. It was a huge deal. And I didn't realize I didn't realize how it worked in terms of how they bill you, like for the minutes. Mm. Is that even still a thing? Do people still pay for? I feel like everything is just unlimited now? Maybe not. I'm, I I don't
1: think it's unlimited, but I don't think people use as many minutes because of texting. I think unlimited right. texting is a thing now.
0: You don't hear many people these days say, like, I can talk, but I don't have many minutes left. So make so it you quick. See call you me on the weekend or something. Right. Yeah. But this was back in the days where minutes counted. Um, what cell phone company did you use? Oh, I don't remember. It was probably just AT and T or something. Wasn't. Um,
1: what was the one that used to let you do rollover minutes, singular or something? Oh yeah. I used VoiceStream, which had that parrot. Wow.
0: And then it became T-Mobile. Wow, so you were in on the ground level. That's right. I so had. So you own part of T Mobile. That's right. I had that's one huge. of those
1: like Nokia
0: phones with the giant button oh, in the middle. It's they're going to come back. You know they're going to come oh, back. Oh man, it's I loved that phone. With if you had hung on to that phone, it would be worth $10,000. <laughs> it had uh, a snake on it. Oh yeah. The snake was good. Yeah, amazing. I had, um, I remember when I was, when I was. Living on that air mattress in my friend's floor, I remember having four hundred dollars in my bank account, and that was just all the money in the world I had. I was like, "I gotta, that's where I'm starting from. So, gotta make this work." And a dream. And a dream. I don't even know if I had a dream at that point. <laughs> I was just walking around asking for job applications everywhere I could, and talk and calling jobs and people and whatever on my phone and i like a week later i got my first phone bill and the phone bill was for 400 dollars.
1: shut up oh
0: no yeah and that's i remember thinking like this was like my first sort of steps out of the proverbial nest and i felt (laughs) like um i needed to go back on like one of those people going back on um Rumspringa, is that was that what it's called? The Amish Rum Springer, Rumspringa. yeah, but without all the partying. Um, anyway, that's that was uh where I was when I first came to Boston out of college, and I did find a job. I was literally just applied for jobs everywhere, literally everywhere, just every restaurant, coffee shop, bar record store just literally everywhere and the one place that gave me a job was this little coffee shop and I also applied for a job at the Red Sox t- at, at Nesson which was the Red Sox TV station but it was in Fenway Park like their offices were literally right inside of the stadium mm. um, and so I got the job at the coffee shop and on my first day I got a call saying, you've got the job at the Red Sox place at, at Nessun. I mean, it was like an internship or something. Um, and so I remember just leaving the coffee shop and my boss there was like, okay, cool. Well, so you're telling me you're giving me your two weeks notice. And I was like, no, I'm just going to leave right now. I'm just, I'm just leaving. Mm-hmm. And he was like, you, but you can't. You I and mean, you can't just leave. You, you have can, to give. Actually. And I was like, yeah, but I, I know, but I just, I'm just going to. And we had like this hilarious. It was like a sketch. We're going back and forth, where like I'm just slowly walking towards the door. And <laughs> I'm like, but I literally like look, like I am. I'm walking out the door right now. And then I just sort of like, walked away and never came back. Yeah. Wow.
1: You've had some very impressive connections with big name musicians, Boney Vare, Adam Duritz of Counting Crows, Gene Wien of Ween, Leon La Le and you're also deeply connected to many smaller name music communities. So like you're an essential part of the Cambridge singer songwriter folk community and have been for like almost 20 years. Um not only are you a talented songwriter, but you have a wonderful way of connecting with people and earning their trust. Um, can you talk about that connection and why you think people are drawn to you and continually drawn back to working with you and trusting you?
0: I fooled them all. <laughs> um, I don't know. Um... I've never really thought about it, other than it just feels like luck, to be honest. I mean, just being around the right people at the right time, I guess. Um, I met like the Bonnie Iver thing. I met Justin when they were opening Justin Vernon, the singer of the band. I met them when they were opening for Black Mountain at the Middle East upstairs, and they like, which is a
1: small room it's a t- like a hundred ish yeah people. they were
0: opening for this sort of like post rock heart i don't even know what to how to describe black mountain but they were playing at this little venue in boston and I, they needed like a place to sleep sleep like they all ended up sleeping up on my floor um and like i don't even know what year this was it was before that first record came out um and i think at the time it was just they were they had good music and were like nice people and there was just part of me that just wanted to i don't know it was like a natural curiosity in meeting people um but as a result of that we ended up becoming friends and he extended this really generous offer to come make a record at his studio which was amazing because, like, I didn't really have any money. I didn't have anywhere to make a record. And I opened some shows for them. And it was really cool. Like, that was a big deal for me. Um, Not that it resulted in anything major um, in the world, really, but it was major for my world. Um, And it was just a result of, I don't know, just... uh, I don't know what the right word is for it just sort of natural curiosity and interest in other people. And I guess they it's like all the all the other examples were the same thing. Hmm. Um Adam Duritz I guess that was a weird one. He I got an email from him that just was like I really dig your tunes. And I I don't even know how exactly that happened. You, you know like it's weird at the time. I feel like I, I had, like, 10 or 15 fans in the world, and I have no idea how, hmm. why that happened.
1: I don't know what other A&R people are like, um, but, I, you know, we can imagine the stereotype of somebody kind of, like, taking advantage mm. of that position in kind of, like, a smarmy,
0: that untrustworthy way. Yeah, yeah, that, it, like, I was... Maybe I stood out to those people by not being, like, a slimy music industry person when Mm. so many of the other people in that world are.
1: Yeah. That's got
0: to have something to do with it. Yeah, maybe. It's weird. I've never really thought about it. I mean, honestly, like, in my mind, it's just been, like, just luck. Mm. I'm like, I don't know how I (laughs) happened to meet those guys or... Leanne Mahavis, Le I met her through Willie Mason years ago. Um, and I'm it was just luck. We just kind of ended up kind of hitting it off, mm. became friends. And yeah, um, yeah, it's just. I will say that I, I think there's certain kinds of people who are more open to letting those lucky moments happen than others. Mm. Some people would be like, or what's, why am I going to spend time with this person or that person or, or kind of chasing down those sort of relationships um, because they're just thinking, like, what's in it for me? Where if they were just a little more open to, like, just meeting interesting people um, and just sort of, like, letting, letting those lucky moments happen... You know, maybe that's a better way mm. to go about it.
1: It must have something to do with how you feel about yourself. You it know, might. feeling happy and content and secure and who you are and sort of projecting that out into the world.
0: It could be. Yeah.
1: You want to talk about something else now? <laughs> 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 yeah, it's a it's a it's a good, good conversation to have, but sometimes it gets a little too intense.
0: Yeah. Well, it's just, it's all like, I don't really understand it. It's just sort of like, yeah, it, it all, it really just feels like luck. Mm. I don't feel like there's any, um, anything more to it. Mm. Well,
1: that, I think that's definitely true, but I like all the other answers we came up with. High five.
0: Great. Maybe they like my songs too. Oh, of course. That would be cool. Yeah. Um.
1: What about Isotope? You started working there a few years ago.
0: Yes. So a few years ago, I left the world of management and A and R, and started working for Isotope, and that was a major career change for me, because, ever since I started off. In two thousand three or four or whatever that was, with clap your hands, say yeah. I'd been doing either A and R or, or management, so it was you know, fifteen years, fourteen years. It was a while, um, and I had kind of grown tired of it. It's sort of a str- especially on the management side, like managing it seems bands. Seems like a hustle. Yeah, I don't think I'm the right person for it either. Like. I just don't. That's a long time to do something. Yeah. Something you're like, I don't think this is for me. Whoops. (laughs) Yeah. I could have saved myself a good 13, 14 years if I had figured that out earlier. Uh, But no, it's like anything. Like you got to, it's hard to navigate the course of your life. You know, you can't predict what the right course is, much less control or dictate what it is. But at any given point, if you know something's wrong, you can make a change. So I did that a few years ago, and it was such a great thing for myself. Um, Isotope is just this really cool company in Cambridge that makes um, some of the most interesting kind of innovative technology behind um, audio. So it's so many records that you hear, so much music that you hear has isotope stuff on it, the mixing of it, the way it sounds, how it does, or why it sounds the way it does, um, how it was mastered, so many things. And then also in the film world, there's scenes and films and TV shows that you're only seeing them because they were able to use isotope stuff to salvage it or... Um, yeah, it sounds the way it does because of isotope. So it's a cool place to work. How does that connect you to musicians
1: in a different way than, than in your previous jobs?
0: It allows me to have relationships with many more musicians, like a business relationship, where if I was managing bands, there'd be a handful of bands that I manage... But in this job, I kind of just maintain relationships with hundreds of people. And the relationship has nothing to really do with money. It's really just about awareness and and kind of having, um, having the right people know what's going on with this company. So it's a lot easier, hmm. to be honest. I mean, it's... It's, um, you're just sort of, everything is always positive. Whereas in my old job as a manager, there was a lot of negativity, a sort of obligatory negativity coming from all different places as a nature of the industry and the current climate of that industry. Um, but with this job, it's really just, um, Everyone's always happy to hear from you because people really like the stuff. So you get to just kind of play the role of Santa Claus. Kind of. <laughs> so it's yeah, it's nice. Um,
1: so I don't have any specific like New York, Massachusetts questions at this point. But just to say like you moved to New York for how long were you there
0: from? I think I was there for like 10 years, but it was over a couple stints. So I lived there like in 2004. 2005, and then I lived there again 2010 to 2013. You
1: left and came
0: back. And then I also lived there from 2015 to 2007. It's been like three different stints. And you've recently once again
1: come back to Massachusetts. Yep. Which is awesome. Um, You have a new album, Cuts, is coming out on February 28th, and I hear that there's kind of a Uh, an elbow to the side to Bob Dylan's Blood on the Tracks?
0: Yes. I, you know, getting back to the wordplay stuff, like, Dylan has some of the best Mm -hmm. wordplay. He's got, like, some good little jokes in his lyrics a lot, you know? (laughs) Like, and I always thought Blood on the Tracks was, like, a really clever pun um, of just, like, pouring himself out in the songs. And then um, I realized that you could do the exact same play on words with just one word. Cuts.
1: Cuts like song cuts.
0: Exactly. Cuts like you cut your finger. Right. Ah. Cuts. So um, when Bob heard I was calling my album Cuts, (laughs) he called me up and was like, you son of a bitch. And we just laughed and laughed. Oh, my God. I think we spent... Literally 20 minutes on the phone just laughing <laughs> for 20, is, 20 full minutes.
1: Can you do an impression of Bob Dylan's laughter?
0: Um, it's it's just silent. Oh, like... Yeah, and mine is too. So we just sat there silently oh on the gosh, phone for 20 minutes so knowing. Funny. And then, um, yeah, I don't know where to go with this hilarious <laughs> fake story.
1: Well, just to give people an understanding who are not familiar with your previous two albums. Your first one is called all you love is need. And your second one from 2016 is called pregret. Yes. So very clever, but this album cuts it's very beautiful, calming album and it's dotted with some lovely harp and woodwinds. And you say that you are concentrating on keeping the band Zen and creating a musical Xanax. If, yes. And you say if people were having a panic attack, they could put this on and it would calm them. So that leads me to ask you: What is if you're comfortable talking about it? What is your experience with panic and anxiety? Why was it important to you to make music that
0: reflects calm? I've definitely my whole life um, had to deal with it. I think. I think. You know, it, it, if you haven't, then, then that kind of, that's, I like, don't believe you, you know? <laughs> like, if someone really hasn't had to deal with any anxiety in their life, then um, that kind of just sucks. That's not fair. Mm. <laughs> I think, um, and, yeah, I don't, whether I've had to deal with it more or less than other people, I don't know. But, um At different points in my life, I've had more or less of it. I mean, there have been times where, there were times years ago where, like, you know, I I wasn't going out at all. I wasn't, um, it was affecting my life a lot more in a physical way. Um, and then thankfully, um, now I don't feel that, um, But yeah, I mean, I think it's something that everyone in the world has to deal with. And now more than ever, I mean, you can't turn on the TV or look at your phone without getting it from somewhere. It's like everything in our modern society seems like it's designed to make you feel anxious, Mm. you know, whether it's like political or, um, or, or, um, You know, other other people making you feel bad about yourself on a, the way you look, or who your friends are, or how much money you have, Mm. or what you're not doing, right? Right. Like the the FOMO stuff. Yep, it's all designed around. All social networking is designed to, you know, make you question whether or not you're doing the right thing, Mm. or good enough, or cool enough, and then. Yeah, like the the political landscape or the um, coronavirus or whatever. I mean, every day it's just something else. Um, you know, as Will Sheff says, it's hard to be a human being, and I think we could use we could use a little help anywhere we can get it, and that's where artists come in. You know, I think the job of an artist is to help correct some of that stuff. There's checks and balances. And artists are really important. The same way that doctors are, you know? Like, we need artists to... It's our job. We need to um, help correct that course. And right now, I think we need people to make art that's going to be helping calm people. And So my whole goal with this album... At least in terms of how it sounds, this isn't necessarily the message of every mm-hmm. song, like literally. But in terms of how it sounds, just the vibe of it, I would love to have made something that I know people can put on, and it would be something of an antidote to all that other stuff. That
1: was good. <laughs> yeah. I got water in my eyes, Dave Godowski.
0: It's seltzer.
1: Yeah. It's sparkling. It's actually pretty painful.
0: It's not LaCroix, though. Do you have a um, a preference when it comes to polar seltzer versus LaCroix?
1: No. I just like the flavors. I like the pamplemousse and the lime Ooh. LaCroix, and then I like this black cherry. I also like the black cherry lime, or sorry, the polar lime, mm. but it's just uh, it just depends on what the supermarket has.
0: What's your stance on Topo Chico? I don't know what that is. Really good seltzer water. It's like super bubbly. Where can you get it? You can get it most places now. It used to only be in Austin or something. But now can you can find up. them all over the place. Topo, Topo Chico. It's so, it's so like burns your mouth. It's so carbonated.
1: Oh, I have seen these.
0: I'm going
1: to order some. No, I'm going to go find some. Excuse me. Anyways, back on track. This sounds like a good time to talk again about um, the commercialization of music that we were kind of touching on earlier. Um, I just went to Folk Alliance and Rhiannon Giddens did a really wonderful keynote speech where she touched upon many things. Um, hopefully like I can be emotional enough to be invested in this question, but not emotional, too emotional. Um, The line that resonated with me the most was her saying, we must reject the commercialization of music and get this music to the ones who need it most. To me, that means the type of listeners that you want would be quality over quantity. Get the music to those who will appreciate it for the art and for the message it sends, even if they didn't know they needed it. What do you think?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to argue with that. I don't think anyone's. I don't think anyone would really ever argue with that if they're in the business of making art. Um, I guess someone who would think about it differently might be someone who's just trying to. They're in the business of getting certain numbers. You know, there's certain business people that they might happen to work in the field of music, but what they're really what their job is, is to deliver certain numbers. Mm. And for that person, they just shouldn't work with Rhiannon Giddens, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like, and she shouldn't work with them. Like, that's fine. I
1: want to say that at any level that you're working with in this particular situation, I think numbers are important, but they're not the most important, you know. Um, The mission or the message or the heart of the art is the most important thing,
0: you know? Yeah. And there's, um, I don't I mean, sometimes it crosses over though. I mean, there's part of me that thinks if you're, let's say you do find that target audience that is, that is listening for the deepest message and they're listening so closely to every word and every note, um, and they come to every show, and they're in the front row, and they're totally invested, and their heart is in it, and everything. You kind of already have that audience, you know? Like, I could also see someone making the argument that, like, maybe it's more important to reach the other people and to convert them. Like, how do you find the people who don't listen that closely and convince them to? Like, maybe that's someone who is accomplishing Mm. just as much, if not more. Like, Billie Eilish is, like, a great example. Like, she's reaching people who probably have never thought of music as art before, and Mm. now they are. That is awesome. Mm. Like, how cool is it that there's millions of kids who are discovering music, and because they're discovering it through her... They hear music as art instead of music as commercial. Mm. Thanks, Billy and Phineas.
1: Right, yes. That's yeah. She has been int- it's interesting. She's come up a couple of time and a couple of times in
0: basic folk interviews, which is cool. She's so good. Yeah, um, but I think like what Rhiannon is saying is absolutely true. It's just complicated. Um, And it's probably different for every different artist. I don't know. Like, my wife said to me the other day, what if The Bachelor called you, the show The Bachelor, and said we want you to be on The Bachelor to perform music or we want your music to be on? And I was just like, oh, I would do it, of course. I wouldn't even think about it. Yes, of course I would do it. And she was surprised. I'm surprised. And I was like, well, why wouldn't I do that? Like, you know, my music would be heard by millions of people. I, you know, and like probably 90% of them would never listen to it again and not care. But if 10% of them were like, actually, this guy's really good. And started listening and got really into it and started to discover my albums and my music. And like, that would be like... 300,000 people, Mm. you know, um, that would be really cool. I don't really see the value in rejecting that. It's not like, I mean, if it was a Nazi organization who wanted me to come perform at their event, I would say no. But just because something is a big commercial...
1: Well, what about... So let's let's not say the bachelor because that is like a different world but what about a show like The Voice or American Idol or America's Got Talent?
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I probably wouldn't do it. I don't just because I don't think it would make sense. Like I I think oh, it's really tough cuz part of me would think like why not just do it? You'll regret it if you don't do it. like what do you have to lose? Mm. It's not like I've got thousands and thousands of fans now who are all gonna reject me if I do that and I'll be throwing away my career. like you know you could argue like why not just do it? you, you know like but at the same time, um, I feel like those shows are not. I'm not who they're looking for, and Mm. I'm not who their audience is looking for. So it might just not even make sense.
1: How do you feel as a music industry person who's had a couple of different roles that you're kind of like a caretaker of someone's art? Like, Do you think about that, and with what mentality do you approach that? Like if Justin Vernon was like, the voice called me and said they want me to be on, what should I do?
0: Oh, yeah. Um, it was really stressful. That's one of the things that made me want to leave management. Because I felt, um, I felt responsible for people's lives too much. So um, it was too much pressure. Like, you know, with, with, some, with managing someone's musical career, at least for everyone that I did it with, that was their whole life. You know, it's sort of like a euphemism for you're managing their life. And with the industry as sort of decimated as it is, uh, that's putting a lot of pressure and, you know, on you to deliver so that people can um, have a career, you know, like, mm. and I think maybe some of that was in my own head, like maybe from their point of view, it wasn't that intense, but... These were people who I really loved and and whose music I really cared about. So I felt like if I couldn't deliver above and beyond that I was letting them down or, Mm -hmm. like, responsible for, um, you know, uh, potentially would be responsible for having, you know, some for their life in some way. It, It was just too much, you know. Yeah.
1: Um, two more questions Um, you recently became a husband and father and you said I'm at a high point in my life personally professionally and creatively how does this high point affect your creativity
0: I'm just so much more inspired to write um, although I don't always have a ton of time so it's kind <laughs> of a give and take it's sort of like this cruel irony of like when you don't feel inspired to write, you've got all the time in the world Mm. and vice versa. Um, I think this is true for most people. I really, really do. Like, I think there's a false perception or a misconception about um, music that might come across as sad or not necessarily even sad, but just emotional or like, a lot of great music is written when people are going through hard times. And I don't think that's true. I think most, and for most people I've talked to about this, agree that when people are really, really going through rough times, they're not creative and they don't feel super depressed and then pick up a guitar and write this unbelievable album. I think there's a perception that that's what happens You know, like, oh, this person was just went through a breakup and this and that and this, and then they turned to music and wrote their um, magnum opus. You know, Um, I think for most people, when they're at a good place in their life, that's when the songs come out. And maybe it digs up some of the old hard time memories, but it isn't until they're on an upswing that they're able to harness the energy to create music mm. at least that's how it is for me and it's how it is for a lot of people that i know and um so yeah so for that reason i feel like i've just been right the last few years i've been writing a ton um and it feels great although i don't i have less time than ever to do it <laughs> uh you're a part of this
1: yearly songwriting retreat um, on Three Mile Island, called the Sub Rosa Songwriting Retreat, um, which happens in New Hampshire on Lake Winnipesaukee, where you apparently have, so you have little ideas that you've created, and you'll bring all the little ideas with you onto the island, and then after a few years of going to the retreat, you have an album's worth of songs.
0: Yes, that's how I do it. I don't think um, necessarily everyone or anyone else does it. Ex- Exactly that way. I definitely do. Like, that's my one week of the the year where I really bear down and write. So all year long, I'll gather little notes on my phone that are like, I'll get out of the shower and be like, I have this idea for a melody that just came to me. And instead of like sitting down and working on the song for a few hours, I'll just sit down and like sing the melody or that one lyric or the one thing, I'll like talk to myself and say, do the thing like this, but then do that and then go to like the minor four thing, you know, like that thing. Do that. That would be cool. And that's it. And then I'll totally forget about it. Are they all voice memos? Yeah. And then every June I go to this island and, you know, wake up, pour a cup of coffee, six in the morning and I pull out, it's like harvesting, harvesting. I pull out the voice memos and scroll all the way back to... God, it,
1: you, it must be like a like a CSI investigation yeah. scene
0: in your cabin. Yeah. <laughs> it's been 10 years in a row now, and it's always the same thing. I go back to the previous June, because that's when it started, <laughs> and I start listening. And they're so bad. So many of them are awful. <laughs> but then every now and then, I'm like, oh, wait, that's really good. And I have it sounds like someone else. I have no recollection. Of recording it. It's always like it happened in the middle of the night or I never revisited it. So I'll totally forget. And then I spend the whole day seeing if it can blossom into a song um, over the course of the next of the day or the next day or two or three. So there must be like maybe a
1: hundred of them. Yeah. Voice memos. Yeah. When you listen to one, you're like, that's terrible. Do
0: you delete it right away? I usually, if it's really obvious that it's bad, I'll just delete it. Sometimes there's something where I'm like, it's just not doing anything for me. But I don't, I don't know. There must be something there if I recorded it. Because I only record it if I really feel like it's something. Mm. So a lot of them I leave there. And I just say, like, maybe next year I'll revisit it. Or maybe sometime in the future I'll revisit, because maybe there's something there that, you know, me from nine months ago was super into, but current me isn't. Mm. But future me might be into it. So, <laughs> But every, sometimes I'll hear something and I know it's just awful. I'm like, <laughs> <God>. oh, Dave, <laughs> yeah, what were you thinking? I know that um,
1: songwriting retreat in particular, it means so much to so many of our... Songwriter friends, um, mm-hmm. Rose Cousins, Mark Arelli, Chris Delmhorst, um, Dinty Child. Dinty Child is, has the keys to the island. He's yep. the off-season manager. Um, so it's nice to, to hear people yeah. talk about it on the podcast. And yeah. if you
0: Dietrich Strauss. Oh, yeah, Dietrich. Miss Tess, Ark Iris. I mean, there's so many people. Yeah. Kristen Andreas and...
1: It's like we've talked about it before on the podcast but it's like this little island that is about um, half a mile or a mile in diameter it's 3 miles off the coast that's why it's 3 mile island it's pretty rustic um and it's just it and, might be
0: 3 miles in circumference I don't know actually we'll it's have a to good we'll, we'll have to google this <laughs> If we had some way to Google things...
1: (laughs) I've actually Googled a few things while we've been talking. Oh, wow. Um, I'm Googling something right now. (laughs) Um, All right, Dave Godowski. Let's do the lightning round.
0: Oh, I was hoping there'd be a lightning round. Yes. You ready? Yes.
1: What is the first song you learned on the guitar?
0: It would have been... It would have just been something I made up because I started playing guitar. I was just making up little... Ditties, or like the, the the first song of someone else's I learned to play. I th- oh, I think it may have actually been um, that Dylan song. You just kind of wasted my precious time. Don't think twice; it's all right. Oh, cool! That Good song. one. So glad we got there. Yeah, it took me a second. Batman or Superman? Uh, Batman. Karaoke song? Uh, easy like Sunday morning. But I'm just making that up. So, dogs or cats or something else? Dogs. What Sorry, is- Dottie.
1: No. Oh. <laughs> uh, what's your favorite U.S. city? Chicago. First album you bought with your own money?
0: Um, Moody Blues, Sir La Mer. First concert? Uh, MC Hammer. Oh, right, we already covered that.
1: Um, what is your dream collaboration? Elliot Smith. Uh, Beatles or Rolling Stones? Beatles. Gibson or Martin? Martin. When you and your wife had a baby, did you find out what the gender was or did you wait? We found out. Cool.
0: Knowledge is power. <laughs> Would you prefer flying or invisibility? This is a really good question and I've had this debate with a lot of people and I've heard people say that my answer means that I'm like a bad person or something, but I can't help it. Invisibility. Wow. I just, it seems so fascinating to be somewhere and not really be there. Like, and also you can already fly. You can fly in airplanes. Like you can, you can kind of already do that. But invisibility, like there isn't even anything similar to that. That's totally new. I'm just trying to justify myself before the tens of thousands (laughs) of people write me angry letters. What do you like to have for breakfast? Coffee. What is
1: the most beautiful place you've ever visited? Three Mile Island. Yes, same as Matt Smith. Really? That was his answer. Yay, you did it.
0: That's the lightning round. That was fun. I could do that all day. Oh. I want to do this again and have an entire podcast episode oh, of Lightning Just round. the Lightning rounds. It's All good. Right. It feels like um, therapeutic, like it's exercise or something. Like we just did a workout. Really? I want to like drink a water and take a shower and put on sweatpants or something. <laughs> what do people do after they work out? I don't work out. Every...
1: Um, You usually will like eat. I eat. think. Get oh. your metabolism going. Oh, yeah.
0: I'm going to exercise more in 2020. Okay. You didn't ask, but that's, I'm just choosing to give that bonus answer. <laughs> Anything else? That's a bonus answer. Right <laughs> um, Ethan Greska, great album. That's, oh my God. That's, that's my answer to what's your favorite new album? Ethan Greska.
1: I'm wearing, yeah. uh, you can't see, but I wore my Ethan Greska t shirt for this Dave Godowski interview. Um, I bought this before the album came out, before we knew what the album cover was. He told me what it was and then I saw it at the merch table and it was his only merch and I bought it he's so good Yes. well let's wrap this up here Dave Godowski thank you for being on Basic Folk thanks for having me Basic Folk was produced by Laura McCarthy this week. Adam Corey also produces Basic Folk. Lindsay Myers is our business manager. Alex Stanton of Townspeople does our music. I'm your host, Cindy Howes. Basic Folk is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find show notes and all 58 episodes of Basic Folk at my website. Or there's possibly more episodes of Basic Folk because... Maybe you're listening to this a year after it was released, in which case there's probably, how many weeks are there? There's probably a hundred episodes, which is something. It's really something. I'd like to congratulate my future self for a hundred episodes of Basic Folk. So when I go back and listen to this podcast, after I have a hundred episodes of Basic Folk, I can feel good. Hope you feel good too. All right. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.